0: And this is the witness that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other thing, any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To whom be the power forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's make sure we're ready and prepared to study God's Word. A few moments of silent prayer is in order for those of you who... Need to use first John one nine to get back in fellowship, and uh, then we will open in prayer let's pray, Father. We do thank you that we can uh, study your word today for the refreshment it gives our souls as we are exposed to truth, that truth is what sets us free from the bondage of sin, and it is truth that enables us to look at life as you have created it. It is truth that conforms us to reality as you have determined it. Now, Father, as we continue our study in this important epistle of First John, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and to focus on the significance of the doctrines that are enfolded here, that we might, uh, by them, be matured and grow into conformity with Jesus Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Since the uh, fall of man in Genesis 3, the human race has continuously been under assault. We are under assault because of our Involvement as extension to the angelic conflict. As part of that, Satan has a, a plethora of concepts, philosophies, religions, ideas, rationales, which he continuously promotes among the human race in order to deceive mankind, to blind our minds. Notice he blinds our minds. That involves thought. It involves ideas, beliefs, that Satan is involved in blinding our minds to capture, Captivate the human race and to destroy the witness of believers. John writes his first epistle to church age believers who are threatened with false teaching coming from those who had at one time been associated with the apostles and with truth, those who had at one time known doctrine and and were squared away doctrinally, and are now teaching pseudo systems of spirituality which threatens the spiritual life of these believers to whom John is writing. Now, there are a lot of parallels between what was being taught in that day in terms of false doctrine and what is being uh, taught today. This comes under the general category for the most part of the cosmic system. The Christians throughout the church age have been under assault from the outside and from the inside, from the inside I mean internally within the church. Because the, the external assaults that come from the world of the cosmic system are soon mirrored and reflected back and echoed by strange doctrines, new theological developments and concepts that are promoted within Christianity and under the guise of spirituality, Christianity and the truth. And so it is vital for Christians to be able to spot these deceptions so that we are not taken in by false doctrine, so that we are not distracted from the spiritual life, and so that our fellowship is not broken. The main idea in John is the concept of fellowship. And the one thing that comes across that just ought to smash every modern Christian right between the eyes is the idea that that John is saying is that number one, it's belief that break, false belief that breaks fellowship with God, not simply wrong behavior. Everybody focuses on sin as something that breaks fellowship with God, and yet John's emphasis throughout this gospel is going to be on more on the wrong beliefs that produce wrong behavior more than the wrong behavior or sin itself. So, for believers in the church age, we are assaulted from outside and from inside. The outside assault comes from what the Bible calls the world. The Greek word for world is cosmos, and cosmos has to do with an orderly, systematic arrangement of something. And God is looking at this from the facet that that Satan has various systems of of pseudo-truth that he uses to influence, distract, and deceive the human race. This is a major theme in the first epistle of John. In John, 1 John 2.15, John writes, "...do not love the world." And there's cosmos, that is the cosmic system, which is a term I prefer to use other than world, because in Christian verbiage, the concept of world or, or worldliness is so often misunderstood you know the old uh, the old fundies used to think that that if you uh, if women wore makeup because that's cosmetics and the term cosmetics comes from the Greek word kosmos, that uh, if women wore cosmetics, that was worldly. if uh, you went to movies, that was worldly, that uh, you couldn't go to uh, watch television I, I remember the first time I was uh, exposed to uh, what we down in Texas used to call liberal Yankee Christians. because they were, from, they were from Michigan, and we couldn't understand what they said half the time. But they went to a Bible college up there that wouldn't allow them to go to movies or to w- even watch television in, in, uh, in the dorm rooms or anything like that. And uh, those of us who grew up in a grace-oriented environment down in Texas just thought that was the most absurd thing we'd ever heard of. That is not worldliness. That's, just, that's either sin or legalism, but it's not worldliness. Worldliness is ideological. It has to do with the ways you think, and that, of course, culminates in certain overt actions, but the emphasis in cosmos is thinking, so I always like to translate it to cosmic system. Do not love the cosmic system nor the things in the cosmic system. If anyone loves the cosmic system, the, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the cosmic system, and here we have a breakdown relating it to the sin nature because the cosmic system is the ideological rationale that gives, uh, uh, gives uh, power to the sin nature often or, or, or supports the sin nature, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the source of the Father, but is from the source of the cosmic system. And the cosmic system is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. John, 1 John 3.13, he writes, Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. This emphasizes the fact that for the believer, we are going to be in a conflict with cosmic thinking. It's a war. We are, what we think is antithetical to what the world thinks. In James three. 13 through 15, worldly thinking is identified as earthly, natural, that is, sukikos, related to the soulish man, not the spiritual man, and demonic. It's the same kind of thinking that Satan has. It's rooted and grounded in arrogance. Do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. There is going to be a battle. There is a conflict that rages between the way a Christian is supposed to think and the way the world wants us to think. (coughs) <coughs> First John 4, 5, they are from the world, the cosmic system, therefore they speak as from the cosmic system, and the cosmic system listens to them. Now, it is important for us to, as believers to be able to identify, well, we're out of, tell Al we're out of roller here, we have to be able to identify worldly concepts, the basic ideological trends of our age. First of all, you don't have to do that now, just remember it for later. Okay. Um, mysticism. Mysticism is the idea, it's, it's somewhat of a difficult term to, to understand, but it's the idea that ultimate Knowledge and authority. How I know what is true is confirmed by my intuition. That somehow I know it when I hear it. I will intuitively grasp it. I, I, I know that this is God because of my experience. I, I, I was just overwhelmed. And you see the same kinds of things that happen um, uh, every now and then. I hear stories from folks about sort of a near-death experience. Some of the critiques that I have read of that whole thing indicate that in the, just the electronics of the brain, there are that if a person is near death or actually dies, there are so many short circuits that take place that what is generated within the mind are various images. And depending on the background of the individual or, or things they've been exposed to, they may not even know they've been exposed to, All kinds of things can flash through the mind. But people think mysticism, that was the voice of God. The problem with mysticism is that God never acts in history. Not once in history has God ever acted that it is not confirmable and verifiable by external, objectifiable data. So if people say, God spoke to me, how do you know it was God? Whenever God spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament, he always gave them a sign by which they would know that God had indeed spoken in space-time history. It wasn't just liver quiver or some sort of internal uh, warm feeling or, or flash of uh, con- confidence that, yeah, I know it. Well, mysticism is the core concept underlying the entire realm and web of ideas that have uh, come to be known as new age thinking and this involves everything from uh, emphasis on the spiritual realm, emphasis on demons and, and of course in, in secular new age thinking there's the emphasis on uh, uh, demon possession and uh, demons coming in and, and giving wisdom, wise things to people, you have uh, uh, spirit guides and and uh, a lot of this is energized by practices like guided imagery and uh, creative visualization. What happens in the church is that we pick up on these ideas. Somebody goes to college somewhere and gets a PhD in psychology and their favorite uh, uh, psychology professor uh, took them through some kind of a guided imagery exercise and they had an intuitive hot flash about the nature of the universe and it changed their whole perception. And now they're interpreting doctrine in terms of their, uh, internal mystical, uh, insight. And next thing you know, up pops some new, uh, Christian, t- some new technique for living the Christian life. Some guy writes a book, it becomes a bestseller. Because basically a lot of Christians have rejected doctrine, they're looking for anything to make life work, but they still want to wrap it in the camouflage of Christianity. And it's no longer Christianity. Then there's the continuous problem of secular psychology and the problem with psychology and we live in a psychological age in fact one church historian from uh, denver seminary has labeled this age the therapeutic age Uh, you know you always label ages the age of rationalism empiricism the uh, gilded age and history historians always label ages well, this is the therapeutic age, and the emphasis in, in psychotherapy is on the self, is on the individual and finding self-fulfillment, and in, in uh, Maslow's terms, self-actualization. Then there is the continuous, although some of these folks are becoming dinosaurs because of the... Uh, shift to the new age and mystical thinking secular humanism, atheism rationalism, that God doesn't exist, science tells us what is true about the origins of the universe and man and man is composed of nothing but but material molecules then we have the influence of moral relativism moral relativism, that there are no absolutes, there are no absolutes, of course that's an absolute but they don't want to talk about that pragmatism pragmatism infects. It's a deadly infection in Christianity. What works must be right. If I go out and use whatever technique I can come up with and I build a church of 5,000, it must be the work of God. And just because it works doesn't make it right. A right thing done in a wrong way is never right. You know, The Bible teaches us not only how to do things, but what to do. And so we have to analyze methodology as well, but that involves too much gray brain cell activity for most pastors, so it's easier to go out there and and, uh, thump on doors and sell the gospel with the latest marketing technique and uh, then attribute it all to God than to actually do what God says to do so that God gets the glory. That's the production of the whole church marketing approach, which energizes the Church growth movement that is so popular today. And then in our culture as a whole, we have to deal with postmodern thinking. Modernism is basically the idea of empiricism and rationalism that grew out of the Enlightenment. And postmodernism is a rejection of rationalism and everything that the Enlightenment, uh, in the 19th century stood for. And so the way, the path to truth is through inner impression experience, uh, there is no truth. Everybody has their own truth, and every truth is equal. That's that's called uh, uh, multiculturalism, and its emphasis on cultural diversity. And postmodernism goes hand in hand with mysticism, and the New Age movement. And all of these external forces pressure the church so that there are developments of all kinds of new concepts of the spiritual life in Christianity. Interestingly, in light of this, last Sunday there was an article in the uh, by Richard Higgins in the Boston Globe magazine, that bastion of conservative orthodoxy, called "Sold on Spirituality," and he makes a number of observations that I think are are um, quite informative, and that I thought I would. Uh, Share with you this morning, so that we'll have a little newspaper exegesis to enlighten our Sunday morning before we get into the Word, because I think that once we get into understanding what John's dealing with in 1 John, just so you keep your eye on the ball and don't lose sight of where we're going, uh, this is going to help us understand and apply what John is saying in this epistle. As we look at this this article, the writer develops the fact that that America has certainly had a boom in spirituality in the 90s, such that the term spirituality is sort of the catchword for the 90s. But what does spirituality mean? <laughs> There's the rub. He uh, goes on to say that while that calls this America's embrace of flexible notions of the sacred as the biggest sign of the boom of spirituality but not the only one. In other words, what's made it so popular is that now spirituality has become flexible. In other words, there are no longer any absolutes. You can make spirituality mean whatever uh, whatever it is that you want it to mean. He cites various opinion polls which show that 90% of Americans report that they believe in God. Back about six months ago, I read to you an article from the Wall Street Journal, dated, I think it was April 21st, called Redefining God. And in that article, the author, uh, Lisa Miller, indicated that the problem today is that when people may say they believe in God, but what God is it? What do they think that God is? And and it has, there are all kinds of different definitions and concepts of God. So just because Americans, 90% of Americans believe that they Uh, or report that they believe in God, it doesn't mean that they believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who sent his son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Now, if they would ask that, I think the number would reduce a little bit. But this author here reports also that according to a book called The Next American Spirituality, Finding God in the 21st Century by George Gallup, and Tim Jones that they found that the percentage of Americans who, quote, felt a need to I love the verbiage, pay close attention to the words people use in things like this. Felt felt a need to experience spiritual growth grew from fifty eight percent in nineteen ninety four to seventy eight percent in nineteen ninety nine. That's a pretty serious Uh, increase in five years. A survey of 91,530 adults conducted last year by Princeton sociologist Robert Worthnow reported that 43% of those interviewed said their interest in spirituality had increased over the previous year. Now, that doesn't mean they're interested in the Bible. We have to learn how modern man is defining uh, Spirituality. There, this writer indicates three reasons that spirituality has become so popular. First of all, marketing, that wherever there is a, 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 a need, there's also going to be a an increased supply. So part of this is that is, uh, there's, there's more of a, a marketing emphasis. Secondly, this is what I think is a good, brilliant insight on his part, A second reason lies in the emergence of a more flexible notion of spirituality that makes people feel freer to cross religious boundaries and draw together elements of various traditions. In other words, syncretism, I'm going to pick and choose. I like this in Christianity, I like this in uh, Islam, I like this in Buddhism, and I'm just going to kind of mix and mingle and make up my own concept of spirituality. He goes on to say, in a sense, religion, rather than dying, has splintered, multiplied, cross-fertilized with pop culture, and been resurrected in new forms. He said, third, a uniquely modern idea, that of the self. See, that comes out of Freudian psychology. That of the self, which emphasizes personal experience and meaning over the fixed truths of old-time religion, is recasting the nature of the religious search for many Americans. While such an Emphasis can give new meaning to ancient traditions. It also carries the risk that anything, dieting, bodybuilding, surfing the net, anything can be viewed as something spiritual. So next time you hear somebody talk about their spiritual life, you never know what that really means. Better define your terms. There's an increasing emphasis on contemplative spirituality. This comes out of uh, medieval concepts of spirituality in the Roman Catholic Church, where the idea is to empty your mind of everything, and uh, just let. And then, when you've got a vacuum, just you never know what will flood into it. But that's not what the Bible says of spirituality or even meditation. But The Bible, meditation is thought, and it's thinking Bible doctrine and thinking about Bible doctrine. He goes on to quote a, uh, a professor of sociology from. Uh, University of California, Berkeley, who says that that what is new in the is what's new here is the appeal of the word spirituality that it's become the new lingua franca, and he says this is the experiential aspect of religion. It's something that is deeply felt. See, that's that mystical idea. What matters is how deeply it's felt, the impact it has. See, that's part of postmodernism. There's no real objective meaning. Meaning comes. It's it's kind of a borrowed idea from existentialism meaning comes from some from stimulation emotional stimulation and excitement and you can see that i forget who i was talking i think bryce and i were talking about this yesterday in terms of, there's a new movie out I, about climbing um, climbing um, um, the himalayas and uh, one of the uh, i mean it's all this excitement that's generated by special effects and by uh by the by the camera and the plot's lousy and who cares about the plot, but the visual stimulation you get and the excitement from all of these events that are constantly occurring on the screen is what gets everybody all excited. And that's if you notice that's what's happening more and more in movies and, and film is is visual stimulation uh through special effects and plot and character development are disappearing. And that's all part of a postmodern mindset so it's it, the emphasis is on its personal subjective impact, and um, another writer, uh, Martin Marty, who's a prominent church historian just retired from from uh, University of Chicago, states that people want religion, but most people don't want the disciplines, exactions, and commitment that go with it. They want to have a, so, oh, I want, they want' to be able to say they have a relationship with God, but oh, don't make me go to Bible class and have to learn and apply anything. Uh, He says, uh, for them the answer is what I call secular spirituality or seeking spirituality. I just love that. That's not an accident because in the modern church growth movement, their whole emphasis is on, on getting the seekers there, on unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary. And seekers are just people who are curious but not positive. And I don't want those people in my church. I only want people who are positive to the word. I don't want to waste my time with a lot of people who are merely curious. So, for them, the answer, he says, is what I call secular spirituality or seeking spirituality, which doesn't exact any of that. It's religion with all the things that you don't like taken out. Yeah, it's just a real insight in the Boston Globe every now and then. Um, another an- a- analysis is by a sociologist named Alan Wolfe at Boston University, who says we should really see religion as the modern... W- Listen... Take note of the terms here. It's the modern world adapting faith as it sees fit. It's conforming to the world. It is a cosmic system adapting faith to it, not doctrine transforming the world. So he said we should really see religion as a modern world adapting faith as it sees fit, scaling back its dogmatic edges, and replacing intolerance with flexibility. Notice the wordplay here. Intolerance is now... Uh, juxtaposed to flexibility. Uh, intolerance is the great uh, horrible sin in our modern society. Uh, intolerance has shifted its meaning from meaning that you will allow someone to have another view and respect their view without uh, attacking them but you don't affirm their view. Modern, modern uh, definition of, of intolerance to be tolerant, you have to not only allow somebody to have an alternate view, but you have to approve of it. If you don't approve of it as well, then you're intolerant. So he says that it's replacing intolerance with flexibility, which means everything can be right. The result, he says, is religion lite, L-I-T-E, something strongly influenced by the needs of the self. According to Wolf, the importance of the self is the dominant force in the spirituality boom. Quote, people are looking at the role faith and spirituality can play in making them a better, more effective, and more fulfilled person. Now, plug that into the uh, last stage of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is self-actualization. We've psychologized religion. That's why it's the psychotherapeutic age. And spirituality runs the gamut from, from psychology to emotions to getting in touch with your feminine side if you're a man to shamanic healing and going on uh, New Age mystical uh, journeys out into the universe. Uh, Jesus scholar, now if you don't know who Jesus scholars are, that's that group of scholars who get together once a year with their razor blades and go through the Gospels and to try to decide just exactly which verses uh, were actually spoken by Jesus. I think they've settled on about five or six verses out of all the Gospels so far. The rest was just invented by the apostles. Anyway, this this scholar states, We live in a time when the traditional truth, truth claims of religion are deeply suspect. People are aware, maybe too aware, of the relativity of everything, moral relativism. That every statement of truth is ultimately a human product conditioned by various historical contexts. That is as postmodern a statement as you can find. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about with postmodernism, it's on tape around James 3, 13 through 15, and you ought to go back and get those tapes. But what he's saying is every statement of truth isn't true, it's just something that's been conditioned by the environment at that time. Well, we can ask the question then, is his statement True. Has't his statement been conditioned? Well if it has then it's a meaningless statement so why did he open his mouth see it, ultimate what I'm pointing out here I'm not ridiculing I'm pointing out that that the human viewpoint position ultimately reduces to logical inconsistencies, fallacies and non and it doesn't work in, re, in the real world and they can't even for him to even utter a statement he has to deny the basic presuppositions of his statement. He goes on to say that the danger of such an approach is, the modern approach to spirituality, is that it can be produced a spirituality mainly associated with the needs and satisfactions of the individual. Attaining a certain level of spiritual awareness then becomes a kind of consumer item. I've got what I want materially, BMW or whatever, and spirituality too. And that's, that's emphasizing what it leads to is spiritual narcissism. And as one Unitarian said, you know, that you can find truth just about anywhere sometimes. As my dad said, a stopped to watch his right twice a day. This guy said, if spirituality means anything, it means nothing. And that's where we are in modern America. We've come to make everything somehow spiritual and that means that spirituality no longer means anything. Well, that's not new. The same kinds of things were going on in the ancient world At the time that John wrote this gospel, and what was happening is that there were uh, believers who had come out from their apostolic association who had been taught the truth and had believed the truth, but no longer taught the truth. And so they had succumbed to the ideas, the thought world that surrounds us. See, the cosmic system. Is, is like this envelope that we live in. It's like the water is to a fish and air is to us. We, we live in air. We don't see it or feel it or anything. We're never aware of it, but it surrounds us. And it's part of everything that we do. And that's the way the ideas in the cosmic system are. We all grew up in a situation where we were, we were raised, we were educated, and we were influenced by cosmic thinking. It came to us through television shows, through commercials, through the books we read, the fiction we read, through our peers, through our teachers, through our parents, from our children. We're constantly being pressured by ideas, beliefs, nuances, philosophies, and practices that are part of, that contain with them various shadow beliefs and assumptions that uh, are contrary to Scripture. And yet, because we don't think very analytically, we pick up on these things because they are tracted to our sin nature, and we use them because they they make life work. Now, one of the most uh, common, two of the most common error, er, errors that shows up in this, and the two common assumptions that underlie all of this sort of deception, are first of all, that doctrine really doesn't work. You see, that's what they were facing in Ancient Ephesus, and that's what we're facing today. Doctrine doesn't work. Doctrine is just so cold. It's excessively rational, and it's just so, so full of facts and data that that really can't help us solve problems. If we really want to surmount our problems, we have to have a, a more warm, nurturing, caring, e- emotional environment where we relate to other people. as people, not just this cold, dead, factual information. Yet, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says it starts with doctrine. That's the key. Belief affects behavior, not the other way around. But when you are negative to doctrine, then you claim doctrine really doesn't work, so I've got to go out and formulate something new. And the second assumption that underlies all of this, both today and in John's time, is the concept that doctrine isn't sufficient. It's not enough. That's what sufficient means. That doctrine alone isn't what I need to solve the problems in my life. I need something more. And in our modern society, what we handle problems with is all of the modern insights afforded us by Darwin, Freud, Jung, Maslow, and all of the uh, various psychothera- psychotherapists that claim to have the solutions to our problems, whether it's uh, men from Mars and women from Venus or whatever the con- concept is, everybody's got a different idea. And if they're going to be successful, then, then a lot of them are going to contain elements of truth. You know, if, if, if Satan's pseudo-system was 90% wrong and 10% right, nobody would buy it. A good counterfeit's got to be 99% right. But it's that other 1% that skews the other 99% and makes it dangerous. There is a lot of establishment truth, and there's a lot, a certain amount of truth in the Book of Mormon and in the Bhagavad Gita. Now, I don't want any of you going out and reading the, through those religious texts or the Quran to try to derive whatever truth there is there because you're going to pick up all that other garbage along the line that's really going to mess you up. And that's what happens with psychology. They're, certain, they're living in God's world so they're going to make accurate observations at times and they're certainly going to come up with a certain amount of, of uh, things that are true. But it's the overall framework that skews it and makes it wrong. And these are the two fundamental assumptions and that is that doctrine uh, doctrine doesn't work and doctrine is not sufficient it just isn't enough to just trust in God alone and into into Bible doctrine now if you think that that these problems aren't affecting you then wake up they're in the school system your kids are being indoctrinated with these ideas in many of the it's inherent in in many of the educational philosophies that are popular in the schools as well as overtly taught in, in many of the textbooks. Not only that, but most of you have jobs somewhere where you are having to go through a certain amount of ongoing training. And as part of a lot of that training uh, comes out of these uh, new age, mystical, relational ideas. I remember a guy in my church 10 years ago brought me a training manual from a series of seminars they had to go through as a. As a um, um, Employee of, he was at that time working for Southwestern Bell, and this was the, it was nothing more than a seminar on how to be, how to indoctrinate all of your employees into New Age mysticism. It was as, about as subtle as a brick, and yet every employee was required to go through that. So, just because we're living out in rural southeastern Connecticut doesn't mean that, that we're divorced from the influence of these kinds of ideas. They are and they were just as evident back in John's time. So the epistle, first epistle of John hits us with a strong emphasis on the reality of doctrinal absolutes. That we can know certain things and they are true. And the solution to the problems in life are based on the absolute truth of God's word. He further goes on to say that, that fellowship with the, with the apostles is based on doctrinal agreement with the apostles. It, it, you have to hold to what we taught, the message, the doctrine that we taught to have fellowship with us, and our fellowship was with the Father. That's his whole point, is that you, we can't have fellowship... With the, a fellowship with the apostles is based on agreement with their doctrine. If you don't agree with their doctrine, you can't have fellowship with the apostles. And if you can't have fellowship with the apostles, you can't have fellowship with Christ. That's the logic. And the only way to have fellowship with Christ is to have what? Right doctrine. Wrong doctrine means no fellowship. Period. It's not just behavior. It's belief. And that was what was being attacked at that time. Now, fellowship, we must understand what John means by fellowship. It's not a matter of social interaction. It's not a matter of having fun times or having a uh, dinner together or going out and, and having a good time and, and uh, or just simply enjoying some conversation with other believers. That is not what the Bible means by fellowship. What the Bible means by fellowship is is behavior and activity that is specifically centered and undergirded by doctrine, by a relationship with Christ where even the subject of conversation is doctrinal. Two Christians getting together and talking sports over the morning morning cup of coffee is not fellowship. Now, if they start talking about doctrine and they're in fellowship with God, then it becomes Christian fellowship. The word is the issue. So, over against a society that is... Immersed in relativism, Paul asserts that we can know things absolutely, and that gives us confidence. Thirty-six times, John uses one of the two Greek words for knowledge. Thirty-six times, so a major theme in the Gospel—I mean, the First Epistle of John—is on what we know, and this then gives us confidence. Four times, he asserts that we can have confidence in our knowledge, and. 1 John 2.28, he says, And now little children, abide in him. That means to have fellowship with him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. That's a reference to a warning that in disobedience, failure to have fellowship, we can have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 John 3.21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Heart is a mental attitude, mental Uh, function of our soul, where doctrine resides, and if the doctrine there doesn't condemn us, then we can have confidence before God. 1 John 4.17, by this love is matured with us, or love is brought to completion with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. And 1 John 5.14, and this is the confidence which we have before Him, That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Therefore, as believers, we can know certain things that are true and have confidence in that knowledge. For the Bible, biblical spirituality is not based on the subjective shifting sands of of subjective impressions, experiences, emotions, psychological theories, or sociological methods but on the correct understanding of God's Word. John is saying right belief produces right behavior, which culminates in maximum happiness. That's why he says in 1 John 1.4, "...we write these things so that your joy may be full." I find it interesting that John begins by saying, "...I'm writing that your joy may be full." And James, which is a similar epistle dealing with similar themes, starts his epistle off saying, "...count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials." Joy is the end product of the spiritual life. It is the culmination to have this, the maximum happiness that Jesus Christ bequeathed us. He said, my joy I give to you. And so when John is writing, he says to get to that point, you have to start with right belief that then produces right behavior. And only then will you ever get to the goal of having the maximum happiness that Jesus Christ promised. So, if we were to write it up in terms of a formula, it would be the filling of the Spirit plus the knowledge of doctrine plus the application of doctrine is going to yield maximum happiness. It is, see if I have enough room here, the filling of the Holy Spirit plus knowledge of doctrine plus the application of doctrine is going to yield the maximum happiness in this life. That's the only way you can get to stability, tranquility, contentment, and maximum joy in life is through a combination of the filling of the Holy Spirit plus knowledge of doctrine plus application of doctrine. If you stop here, you will eventually destroy the filling of the Spirit because without application, knowledge of doctrine becomes nothing more than an academic knowledge, just a trip on intellectualization. Oh, isn't it fun to learn all these things about the Bible? But if doctrine never eventuates in changed thinking and changed behavior, then all it is is an intellectual trip, which is tantamount to Gnosticism. It is one element, one approach to to uh, Gnosticism. Now, John tells us, Before we get into the epistle, we have to understand the purpose for this epistle. One of the most important things that any exegete can do when studying the Bible is understand the purpose, the author's purpose in writing. If you misconstrue the purpose, if you think the writer's talking about salvation, and he's talking about spiritual life, then you're going to misinterpret everything the author says. And that's really what's happened in the history of the study of 1 John, is that many have taken... The last purpose statement in first John five thirteen these things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that you may know that you have eternal life, as the purpose for the whole epistle. but there are four purpose statements in the epistle. the first is in first John one four and these things we write so that our joint may be made complete. Now what we will see as we go through our verse by verse analysis of first John is that this each purpose statement comes at the conclusion of that section. So that 1 John 1.4 gives us the purpose, that these things is what he just said in 1 through 3. So he's going to talk about fellowship, that's the subject of 1 through 3, and the message of eternal life, that he's writing that so that our joy may be, may be complete. The next purpose statement is in 1 John 2.1. My little children, I am writing these things, that is... Uh, from 15 down through uh, 2 one or down through 110, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous. That means in First 1 John 1, 15 through 10 the subject is the believer's personal sin and the encouragement is don't sin, but if you do, you have a solution, and that's First John 1 nine. If we admit our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then the next purpose statement is in 1 John 2.26. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There's a warning in this epistle to those who have gone out from us but were not of us and who are deceptive. And that purpose statement governs the section from 2.18 to 2.24. And then the last purpose statement, which relates to salvation and knowing that you're saved, only covers the section from five six through five twelve, not the entire section from from the uh, two twenty five on. Just that last little section from five six to five twelve. In between, from two twenty five to five five, is the main body of the epistle. And at the prologue, and at the at the epilogue, there are uh, additional statements written in relationship to. The spiritual life. Now, one of the major problems that John is dealing with in this epistle is that there are there is uh, an opposition. There's a, a threat to the congregation. They are being threatened by false teachers and false doctrines. That if they follow those false doctrines, then it will break their fellowship with the apostles because it will be a false doctrinal system. This what we're going to see here is the germ. The, the seed, the, the, uh, excuse me the seed of, of what later became in the Roman Catholic Church, apostolic succession. What John is saying is apostolic succession is based on apostolic truth. If you don't have apostolic truth, there's no apostolic succession. Apostolic succession in the first three centuries of the church was a succession of doctrine, an agreement with apostolic doctrine not the idea that one man put his hand on the other and passed it on from person to person. That became the aberration, and that probably, as one writer points out, probably has its roots in the Gnostic heresy or the pre-Gnostic heresy that we begin to see as a problem here in in, uh, 1 John. So the question we have to ask is, who were the opponents here? Who were the adversaries? Who were these defectors who now threaten the spiritual stability of the church? One solution has been a, a well known uh, heretic or pa- uh, pagan at that time by the name of Corinthus. Some people pronounce it Sorentus, but it's a it's a, a Greek name and there's no c soft c sibilant sound in Greek, so it ought to be pronounced Corinthus. Corinthus was uh, born in Egypt and was raised as a Jew. And he was the leader of a group of Christians that have Gnostic uh, tendencies. Now, I'm going to introduce you to some new terminology. Gnosticism and Docetism. Docetism is spelled D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. It's from the Greek word docao, which means uh, uh, just an appearance, to seem, to appear to be something. Now, Gnostic is not really a problem yet. Docetism... Docetism, rather, is, is beginning, just beginning. What you see is the, the only literature we have documenting Gnosticism, the, or the earliest literature we have, comes from about 150 A.D. Now, First John's written about 85 to 90 A.D., so Gnosticism doesn't really come on the scene as a full-blown system for another 50 or 60 years. But in the context of the ancient world, there are a lot of ideas floating around, that later come together into what the, the Gnostic system. So it's not really correct to say that the problem that John's dealing with here is Gnosticism or Docetism because they haven't really, uh, fully developed yet. But certainly they're there. The ideas were, some of the ideas in those systems were pr- uh, prevalent at this time. Now, Serenthus was such a, was so hostile to John that uh Eusebius tells us the story that at one time uh John was in the a uh, bathhouse in Ephesus and he learned that uh Sorrentis was in there in the bathhouse and John got up grabbed a towel and ran out screaming the building will collapse because the enemy of truth is inside now we don't know if that's true or not but but that's that's the legend uh so Serentus is viewed as a as a major opponent here but but what we know of Sorenthus and what he taught does not completely stack up with what uh, John emphasizes in 1 John. Sorenthus denied the virgin birth. That was typical in Gnosticism. Gnosticism rejects the material presence of God. Docetism, dokeo means to appear. Christ, Jesus really didn't take on flesh he just appeared to it was just sort of an illusion because because all of this comes out of a of a background of platonism where material things matter is evil and the spirit is good so so by definition god could not become flesh because if god became a man with physical properties then he would become tainted with sin and if god suffered then he couldn't be god so Therefore, it had to just be an appearance, and, there, and, and, and so God really doesn't become flesh. So there's an attack on the incarnation and the virgin conception and birth. And their idea was that Jesus was just the most prudent, wise teacher of all time. Now, we have laid that uh, pr- inconsistency to rest because you can't logically say that Jesus was a wise, wonderful man and a wonderful teacher if he claimed to be the only way to God. If he claims to be the only way to God and to be God, he's either lying or he's telling the truth. If he's lying, he's deceptive, and he can't be, by definition, a wise and wonderful teacher. If he's a deceiver, so Jesus is either uh, who he claimed to be, the God of the universe, or he is the greatest deceiver of all uh, human history. So, but Cerinthus taught that believed that Jesus was no more. Uh, was just a more righteous, prudent person than anyone else, that um, Christ, the Spirit of Christ, just uh, descended on Jesus at his baptism and then departed from Jesus during his uh, time in Gethsemane so that the human Jesus died, but Christ never suffered. The Christ Spirit never suffered and never was there during the growing up formative periods uh, in Jesus' life. Now, John does emphasize some doctrines that relate to that. He emphasizes that Jesus is the Son of God, which is a title of his deity. He emphasizes that Jesus was incarnate and he was Christ in human flesh from his from the virgin birth. That you have Jesus is fully God and fully man from the time of his birth until the time of his death and beyond into his resurrection. That's the doctrine of the hypostatic union. So uh the point of all of this is that the system that comes along and says that Jesus wasn't fully or the spirit of Christ just came on Jesus uh during those 3 years of his ministry is a denial of the fact that the entire life of Christ is a life of perfection which qualifies him to go to the cross. Therefore, it's a subtle attack on the sufficiency of Christ because we know that Jesus grew and matured and handled all the problems of life. He was sinless, but he did it all through the filling of God the Holy Spirit, which sets the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. Now, if, if he's not fully God, and if this is just some spirit that ascended on him during his ministry and wasn't there when he suffered on the cross then Jesus couldn't be setting the precedent for the spiritual life in the church age. There's no qualification of him to go to the cross, and all that happens on the cross is a human being dies and there's no deity present. So, therefore, there's no salvation. So, you see, the assault is very subtle. It is an assault saying the doctrine doesn't work because Christ really didn't do what you claim he did, and that doctrine isn't sufficient because Christ really didn't establish the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. So, that is uh, integ- integral. Those two concepts undergird all of Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is one of those things that's very difficult for us to understand, sort of like nailing jello to the wall. And the reason is is because it was very amoebic. That mean, what I mean by that is it just sort of absorbed anything that came along, any idea it would absorb, so that you had some Gnostics that were antinomian, and they would say that, well, my life is spiritual, so that what I do in the flesh is sin, because flesh is sin, so that really doesn't matter. What matters is what I do in the spirit realm. So in the, physically, they would commit all kinds of sin because it didn't affect them spiritually. They made such a dichotomy between matter and spirit. Others were very uh, uh, legalistic and very ascetic, emphasizing the fact that, that, uh, that you would gain greater impact in your spiritual realm if you were going through suffering and deprivation in the physical realm. So it included all kinds of different ideas and absorbed all kinds of different, different principles from different religions, much like the New Age movement does today. And that's why many say that the New Age movement is just a modern form of Gnosticism. In fact, one of the major uh, journals that promotes New Age ideas is called Gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge and the basis for the word Gnosticism. Now, when we look at this epistle, there are ten things that are denied by the false teachers. We will close by just summarizing these ten things that are denied by these false teachers. First of all, they denied a connection between behavior and fellowship with God. It doesn't matter what I do. As long as I confess my sins, I'm in fellowship. And uh, you'll hear that sometimes from Christians, and they just sort of bounce in and out of fellowship all the time and never grow. The point of the Christian life is to stay in fellowship now. All of us bounce in and out of fellowship because we all sin. But some people use it licentiously and they just never go anywhere. They, there are the antinomians who deny any connection between behavior and fellowship with God. This is in 1.6, 2.29, 3.6, and 10. The second thing that is denied by these false teachers is personal sin and a personal sin nature. They say we have no sin in John 1.8-10. Third thing they deny is the reality of Christ's sufferings on the cross to propitiate the righteousness and justice of God. See, for them, Christ's Spirit left him in the Garden of Gethsemane and only the body was on the cross. Or in Docetism, if that was the problem, then it was just an illusion. It was just an appearance. But I love Ignatius' response. While he was in prison for his faith, he said, Well, if he really wasn't there, why am I in prison? Point four, they denied the need to obey the commands of Scripture, which is ultimately a rejection of the authority of Christ in everyday life of the believer. You know, this is really important. Every now and then I run into somebody who says, you know, you emphasize that the Bible says that these are mandates for the Christian life. Isn't that legalism? So some people just never understand. What legal, legalism is saying that God's blessing in my life is dependent on my obedience or disobedience. But if you say that the commands of Scripture, if, you say, if someone says that you have to obey the commands of Scripture, if you say that, then that's legalistic. You're just not grace-oriented. If you emphasize the mandates of Scripture, then then uh, that reduces Christianity to licentiousness, which is, of course, what they're trying to justify Point number five, they denied the importance of application of doctrine beyond just a certain academic, intellectual, or idealized level. See, that was typical of, of Gnosticism. Gnosticism just emphasized knowledge for knowledge's sake. The secret to life is just a special knowledge. So, it intellectualized a knowledge. And if you have this intellectual knowledge and that's all you need, there was no connection between knowledge and behavior. And so, these false teachers denied the importance of application of doctrine beyond a certain academic, intellectual, or idealized level. That's in 2.6. Point six, they denied the mandate to love one another. I don't have to love him. He's horrible. He's ugly. He's unlovely. He's mean. He's nasty. Whatever the reason is, Uh, he doesn't ever take a bath. So, I'm not going to love him. They denied the mandate to love one another. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. But if behavior isn't affected by belief, then you really don't have to do something as unpleasant as loving someone who's not very lovable. Uh, Of course, we know that is an exercise of unconditional and impersonal love. But it's still the responsibility of the believer to love those who are his enemies. Point seven, they denied the need to confess sin for restoration, of fellowship, and filling of the Holy Spirit. If you don't sin, you don't need to confess it. Furthermore, there are those who have gone out from us who are not really of us in our modern context who used to teach, as we do, the importance of confessing sin for restoration, of fellowship, and the filling of the Holy Spirit and no longer teach that. And if you look at their lives and at some of their teaching... There are elements of Gnosticism and licentiousness infecting their theology. Point eight, they denied the necessity of identifying and removing human viewpoint thinking from the soul and replacing it with divine viewpoint doctrine. See, what happens is a lot of people get caught up in sort of an academic trip at church. Oh, good, I'll learn what John's about. I'll learn this doctrine, that doctrine. But they don't really get to the point of saying, okay, what I'm about here is I've got to get rid of bad thinking and I've got to change, exchange it for doctrinal thinking. In other words, I have to do some real work at changing the way I think about life, because if I don't change the way I think about life, if I just change behavior, it's superficial, superficial. Or they just think, well, it's not really about behavior. That's, that would be legalism. It's just about thinking, and as long as I can understand all these doctrines and the terminology, then I'm okay. That's Gnosticism. They deny the necessity of identifying and removing human viewpoint thinking from the soul and replacing it with divine viewpoint doctrine that would in turn affect the, a change in their life. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Point nine. They denied that Jesus was the Messiah, the eternal second person of the Trinity. And uh, that should be 2.21 or 2.22, excuse me, 2.2, 2.21 and 5.15. Verse 10 and, and point 10, they denied the reality of the incarnation In 1 John 4, verse 2. The problem with denying the reality of the Incarnation is that in the Incarnation, Jesus Christ establishes the precedent for living the spiritual life. It is in the Incarnation that Jesus Christ demonstrates the nine of the ten stress busters. He doesn't have to demonstrate confession because he never sins. He demonstrates, really, eight, because he's not occupied with Christ, eight of the ten, And he shows that under the filling of the Holy Spirit, man can face and surmount any adversity, any problem in life. That's sufficiency of doctrine. And he shows that doctrine is enough. So, if you reject the incarnation, then basically what you are doing is attacking the foundation, not only for salvation, but for the entire spiritual life. And that's why the thrust of 1 John is not about salvation, it's about the spiritual life that we have to have a proper understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if we don't, then it breaks fellowship with the apostles, which is tantamount to breaking fellowship with God. That's really his point. And that it is destructive of our own spiritual life because there will never be any basis for living the spiritual life because we have rejected its foundation in the precedent set and the pattern set by our Lord Jesus Christ during the incarnation from birth to... To death, and that brings us to our starting point next week in 1 John 1, 1, where we get into one of the most difficult and complex Greek sentences. The first four verses are one sentence with two parentheses, one anacoluthon, and um, uh, the stacking of six different relative clauses on top of each other, which is, uh, has led many people to a mental breakdown. So we'll start there. Next Sunday morning, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for your word, that it is absolute truth, that you have provided everything for us, that just as Jesus Christ's death on the cross is sufficient, because it paid the penalty for every sin in human history, so the doctrine that you have revealed is sufficient for us to handle every problem, every situation in life. Father, we do pray that uh, if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. You can know that you have eternal life simply by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. All you have to do right now, right where you sit, is to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. God the Father knows what you are thinking and what you believe, and at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you are regenerate, giving eternal life, which you can never lose. Father, we pray for the rest of us that you will challenge us with the need to make doctrine the number one priority in our life, to make fellowship with you in the filling of the Holy Spirit uh, the priority as we learn doctrine, that we may apply it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to produce fruit for spiritual growth. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.